Well, good morning and welcome to this webinar on California's economic outlook, how to plan for it in your budgets. It's an important thing. We've had a long expansion. It's a key time to be thinking about what's the future going to look like and how do you factor that into your budget so you don't get overextended uh, and that you're able to budget effectively uh, for the future and manage future events. This is a service provided by uh, CSMFO is a member benefit. It's the 20th year of the coaching program, uh, guided by the Career Development Committee, uh, chaired by Laura Nomura, and 12 volunteers that serve to identify topics like this and presenters to help you uh, develop your skills, abilities, and information sets needed to be effective local government finance professionals. Just a quick overview. We're taking a look at the econo economic uh, conditions in California. Where are the strengths? What are some weaknesses? What, what's looking uh, like the future here? Uh, how do you manage those? How do you factor them into your budgets in very concrete, tangible ways? What are some resources that you can use? We're really motivated by this in looking at the responses to the registration questions, and we discovered that 60 to 70 percent of, of the registrants for this webinar uh, either are not aware of or have not accessed uh, the tools and information that are available from the state of California. And so we're really delighted that Irena Odmanson uh, has been joining us today as a chief economist from the California Department of Finance. Irena Osmondson uh, has been in that role since 2013. Uh, she has a great background as a, on the, uh, as a staff economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, as a research assistant for the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and she's a second-generation California native uh, right there in Davis, California. Um, she got her PhD in economics from Stanford University and a bachelor's from MIT. And of course, we have Michael Coleman, uh, known uh, uh, so fondly by all of us in CSMFO uh, for his work in, in helping us uh, think about uh, the financial and economic questions that are so critical to local government. And so, Michael, we're pleased to have you here today. And before we launch into Irena's uh, presentation, the rest of the session, would you take just a couple moments to uh, help frame this conversation for our audience and how they might think about uh, these issues? Sure. Good morning, everybody. Happy Halloween. Uh, I hope that this is a topic that's uh, fun and entertaining, but uh, of course, there's some some appropriate uh, fear that you should be considering in this. There's a healthy fear, I would say. We need to be real aware, of course, of where the general economy is going and then uh, having a better understanding of that, what, what the nuances are and the implications are for our localities, both in terms of the economics and then boiling that down into our revenue and expenditure pictures. I mean, that's sort of obvious and goes without saying, but I think the importance of today's uh, webinar uh, with Irina will be able to help us uh, get a, uh, ask some questions maybe that haven't occurred to us before that will lead us into some better investigations of these things and better preparation of, of what's, what's to come uh, in the coming years. And we need to be aware of that and planning for that effectively in order to serve our agencies well. Okay, great. Thank you, Michael. So let's take a look at the very first polling question that we have here, which is we're always eager to see uh, who's in our audience. Uh, we know how many sites are connected. We actually have nearly 400 sites registered for this session, so a healthy interest in this topic. But we're interested in knowing how many are at your uh, location. We always encourage group learning because it's a great way to be sharing these ideas. And we find that uh, however many people you've got, it geometrically increases the uh, learning with the number of people that are involved, especially the application of the learning to 
your ongoing activities. So we'll take just a moment for that to be open. Uh, we've got a question that's come in about the call-in number. Mm -hmm. uh, you find that on the audio control on GoToWebinar. You can use that or you can use your computer speakers. If you have any trouble with sound, as we noted in the emails, please use uh, the uh, telephone dial-in. That'll get help you avoid any local internet connection issues that you may have that we can't control or overcome on your behalf. And again, uh, please type in any questions that you've got as we go along. We encourage you to do that. I'm wrapping up this first polling question here. And we'll take a look and share the results. Uh, so we have uh, two-thirds of you there on your own, another third in groups of varying sizes, up to as many 10 in, in size. So delighted to have all of you here today and participating with us. So let's go to our uh, presentation here, and Irena Osmundson. Irena, thanks so much for joining us uh, there from Sacramento. Delighted to have uh, your expertise with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to all of you about some of the great work that my staff does, um, and also some of the data that we have available on our website, and also some of the things that we think about that might also be relevant for you. Um, so let me jump right in. Oh, Don. Oh, okay. So uh, let me just give you a little sense of what we're going to be doing today. Um, I, I do want to walk you through some of the data and resources that are available publicly that you can use in your own forecasts, both um, at the state level for you to help frame uh, what's going on at your local level, and then also some of the more local data that's available from, for example, the Employment Development Department or that we have on our own website, because we do some local projections as well. Um, so again, you know, forecasting and a lot of this um, risk management is a lot about telling a story. It's telling a story about what's going on in your local environment. It's telling a story about what kinds of shocks you might face in the future. Um, it's telling a story about how you think other people are going to be acting, and so then how, how should you be reacting. So for example, the federal government is going in a very different direction um, than it had been uh, under the previous administration. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for what you might be able to expect in the next recession? Um, are they going to do as much uh, sort of fiscal stimulus nationwide? Are they going to expand unemployment uh, times, the times in which you can draw unemployment insurance um, to the same extent that we did in the last one? Probably not. Uh, and so what kinds of vulnerability does, does that engender for your local governments? Um, I also want to talk a little bit about how to construct a good forecast. Um, it is difficult because you sort of have to not forecast a recession. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Um, and then the other part is you want to sound credible and you want to give confidence to your policymakers about how your forecast is constructed, but you also have to warn them about where it can go wrong. Um, so, uh, you know, we kind of have uh, a mantra here at finance, which is no surprises is, is a good thing, um, which can mean that we sort of have a forecast and then we warn you about all of these horrible things that could happen. And then if one of those things happens, 
then we already warned about it and it's not a surprise. Um, and somehow that seems much more comforting to people um, than I thought it would be. Uh, so you should think about maybe adopting this, uh, this same mantra of no surprises. Okay. Um, a good forecast really requires a lot of infrastructure. And when I talk about infrastructure, I'm talking about sort of capacity of people. Um, it's both, you know, spreadsheets and data and how you're managing that data, how you're updating that data, but it's also about people with the eyes to see what's going on. Um, and so here, here's where diversity really pays off. Um, I don't know how big your staffs are, but it really, really helps to get several people, even if they're not usually working with you in your core, um, in, in your core operations, to take a look at things and to hear what you're telling them and to also say, well, I'm not really seeing that in what I'm observing when I walk around town. Um, what about this instead? That's really, really valuable. So um, I've, I've sort of broken down the components of having good capacity into a couple things. So do you have several staff with the training and the time to know their data? Do you have people at the staff level who can look at stuff? Um, do you have a formal review and vetting process, which is overseen by a manager who knows how to ask questions of your staff? Um, and that really does have to be a different person than the staff who are looking at the data themselves. Um, and then the third component of a good forecast is, do you have a way to communicate this to your policymakers? Do you have a way for your policymakers to ask questions? Do you have a mechanism to educate your policymakers about what's going on? Um, so if you have all three of those things, you're in great shape. Um, if you don't have all three of those things, then um, let's, let's talk about how you get there. Um, so I'd like to do a polling question about how many of these three components do you have? Okay, and we're launching that polling question right now so that people can take a look at the poll and click off however many of these uh, components you've got in place. Recognizing that part of the purpose of today's session is to help you think about and to build the things that you need to add into uh, what you have in order to do it effectively. So we'll be taking a look at that. Again, if you have questions along the way, and we encourage you to type them in using the question function. I'll be delighted to um, ask those questions of our presenters in the course of the discussion. Uh, so we'll have a, a good opportunity for you to be thinking concretely about what you're gonna do next as you get the material and think about how you'd like to implement it. Also want to highlight for those of you that are, have a question about it, we always post our, the presentation materials in PDF form on the Agenda and Archives uh, tab of csmfo.org slash training slash webinars 24 hours in advance. It's also available in the handout section uh, right there on your go to webinar controls. Uh, so those are available and we make them available again in 24 hours along with the digital recording from today's session. So many ways that you can benefit. So we've had a minute. So let's take a look at uh, how, how this uh, sorts out and get the statistics up there. Okay, so what are you seeing about the responses, um, Irena and Michael? And launch us forward. So this is encouraging. Sounds like a lot of yeah. you have at least some of the components in place. 
Now I think, um, Arena, when you're talking about a forecast, Arena, you're you're uh, you're, you're thinking about uh, from an economic standpoint. I mean, I, when I think about forecasting and sort of the this economic analysis, the financial analysis, I would I guess I would say fiscal analysis might be the broader term that I would put these things under. And a lot of us, I think many of us in local government are doing financial revenue and expenditure forecasting, and we might be working with. Uh, with consultants to give us, uh, you know, property tax and sales tax forecasting. But then there's a whole other aspect of it, which is the economic forecast, the demographics and where are those things headed that, of course, inform the revenues. I think many of us jump to or only publicize the financial parts of it. And uh, so it's really also the economic piece of it, which is very helpful for your community and your uh, policymakers to understand what you're thinking of in terms of forecasts in your community and uh, for your agency that then underlies your financial asset, uh, forecast. So there's only two big areas there. I mean, it, 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 that's a sort of a, uh, you know, a loaded question there for you, Randy. <laughs> What's your thought on that? Well, so I think of the economic and the demographic forecast as underpinning all of this fiscal forecast. So for example, um, uh, I'm going to use an example from Davis because I am from Davis. Um, you know, there's there was some controversy about adding a new target in our town. Um, and clearly, if we had a target in town, then we would get more sales tax. Um, a lot of people from Davis were going up to Woodland to shop at that target. And so people were concerned that, well, if you have this target, then it's also going to undercut local businesses downtown. And so what are people going to do? And all of those revenue forecasts were underpinned also by how many people we thought we were going to have in, in Davis. Were we going to get more students? Were we going to allow more development and have families who weren't associated with students in town? That also underpins, um, you know, that, that's demographics. That's also economics in terms of the housing. And that should tell you what would happen with your revenue forecast. And if one of those pieces that you were assuming were going to happen didn't happen, then clearly your revenue forecast has to be adjusted. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about your forecast has to start with your assumptions. It has to start with that story of what's going on. Um, and then it comes down to, we're going to get an increase in sales tax of 5% next year. There's a lot that goes underneath that. Um, so, let me tell you a little bit about what the state does. Um, we do start with the demographic projections. Um, California in, and by the way, a lot of people sort of have stylized facts in their head. So when they ask questions, they're kind of reacting to a story that they've already been telling themselves, which is one maybe that California is growing really fast. And it could be because they started their policy career in the 1980s, which is when the state was genuinely growing very, very fast. Or it could be that they're more tuned into what's going on more recently, which is birth rates are a little bit lower. So, you know, you also have to be a little bit aware of what people's priors are, what, what their prior assumptions are, so that you can tell them what is relevant information for them to help update those, those assumptions. So we start with the demographic assumptions. Um, California is growing a little bit slower than it has been. Um, we do the economic projections on top of that, which is, um, not quite as slow moving. Uh, we look at unemployment rates, we look at personal income, we look at inflation, we look at how California's GDP is going, you know, for number five. <laughs> um, 
uh, we and and then all of that feeds into what we think is going to happen with revenue. So we sort of start at the bottom and we work our way up um, and we try and make sure that there's consistency between each of those pieces. So let me jump into the demographic part. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, also, here is our website. We we post an enormous amount of data. Um, so you can see that there's the demographic data, there's the economics, there's the revenue taxation. Um, I also oversee the major regulations. Um, this is probably not as relevant for you, but uh, just as an aside, anytime a state agency has to propose a new regulation that's going to have $50 million worth of costs or benefits to the states, then they have to write an expanded impact assessment. So every regulation has to write an economic impact assessment to tell who is going to be affected and in what ways. But a major regulation, one that has the 50 million threshold, um, they have to do an expanded one. So for example, cap and trade amendments, those tend to be very large. Um, all of the cannabis regulations that the state just put in place, all of that is posted on our website. Um, I don't think a lot of people know about this. Uh, I get lots of questions about cannabis and yet no one seems to have seen the data um, that we did for the state um, and how big it is. Um, so for example, you know, uh, by one estimate, the retail consumption value um, for the state as a whole should be about six to $7 billion. That, that's probably the consumption in California. How much of that is going to be legal or not? That's the big question. Um, but there is some information there uh, if you have been wondering about it and wondering about your local local impacts on that. Okay. Um, is the next one population pyramid? There we go. Okay. This is the population pyramid. It takes a little while to wrap your head around it, but um, it looks at population for the various age ranges. So the red is males, the blue are females. This is California's population in 1970. Um, there is that weird thing up at 80 to 89. I think that's a data anomaly where a whole bunch of people just sort of, they, they got grouped in that area, um, but I, anyway, ignore that part. Um, but you can see a couple things here. One is that there's more young people than there are older people, clearly. Uh, people die off. The other is that you see these bulges. So in 1970, that big bulge down near at the bottom in the zero to about 25 age range, that's the baby boomers. And then there is this other sort of like upper one um, where uh, it's, it's sort of the parents of the baby boomers. So those are the ones who had moved to California uh, as part of the big defense um, expansion because California's economy at that point was mostly defense spending. So this is a population pyramid. It goes by ages. Um, you can sort of see how many people there are of either sex in, in these age ranges. Can we go to the next one? Okay. This is California's population in 2017. So again, you have males in red, females in blue, uh, it goes by age ranges. Um, notice how it's not a pyramid anymore. It's really much more up and down. 
there's a much more even distribution. Um, but you still see, you know, some of the baby boomer ages, um, and you can see it, the part at the 20-year-olds that sort of sticks out. That's that's what we call the echo boom. Those are the kids of baby boomers, um, and there's quite a lot of them. Uh, a lot of those are also college students because California has quite a few uh, colleges, uh, and people come to California for that, or they come for their first job. Um, so we have a bulge there. But really, it's it's pretty straight up and down. Um, you can also see that we have far more people who are older. That's your pension problem. Um, and because there are fewer people at the younger ages, that means that there's a far lower proportion of people at the working age who are supporting retirees. So that dependency ratio is, is now much higher. Okay. Can we go to the next one? Okay. Counties can differ by a lot. Uh, this is San Francisco County, um, which is one of the more extreme ones. Uh, here you can sort of see how it's evolved from the 2000 census to the 2010 census, um, and you can see some overlap. You can also see, in contrast to the previous ones for California, San Francisco hasn't really grown that much. Um, and it's landlocked. It's, it's relatively difficult to add a lot more housing in San Francisco County. Um, but you can also see there's really not a lot of kids. It looks like a Christmas tree. It, it doesn't look like a pyramid. It doesn't look like a cylinder. It looks like a Christmas tree. Um, and that's because most of the people who are living in San Francisco have to be working to be able to afford to live in San Francisco. And if you are of the age where you want to have kids, where you want to have a family, you basically have to move out of the city. There's just not enough space. Um, it's rents are crazy. Um, and so also people as they get older, if they want a little bit more space or if they want to sort of have a more suburban lifestyle, then they tend to move away. So from about 30 all the way up to the top, you get much more pyramid structure. Um, so that that's one way. Um, you can clearly see the impact of housing policies here on the demographic cho choices that people make. Can we go to the next one? Oops, sorry. Okay, this is Yolo County. Um, you can see that there is this huge bulge where UCD is. Uh, that's all college students. Uh, people stick around a little bit um, for jobs, but basically either it's a cylinder or it's UCD students. So Yolo County as a whole, if you didn't include all of the uh, UCD students, would look very much like that shape that we saw for California right now, which is the up and down cylinder. Um, but of course, we have all of those college, college students, which is mostly nice. <laughs> Except for when they're throwing parties. Yeah. OK. Um, can we go to the next one? Don, do I have control over these? Should I have control over these? Yes, you do, I as do I. So I can bail you okay. out at any time. So I'll follow okay. you as you go. All right. Um, this is Lassen County. Um, Lassen County has a very large prison. Um, so hmm. you see a lot more males than females. Um, you don't see, you know, you, you sort of see um, fewer females of working age. 
um, you see some kids, you see some retirees, but the, you know, that working age population in females is not there. Um, the working age population in males is there, but they're all incarcerated. So even though you have all of these people, they're not necessarily adding to, um, well, one, there's not a lot of demand for housing because they're all incarcerated. Um, and two, they're probably not working or spending money, so you can't count on sales tax from them. Um, Irina, do the census figures allow uh, you to break out the prison population from this to isolate it separately? Yes. You'd have to um, we that gets really messy. Um, oh. So we we tend to sort of just show this and then talk about how a big part of this bulge is is just prison. So if you were going to break out something, or say on the Yolo County one and the in the last one, if you wanted to break out the the university population, the students separately, because there's a different effect there, then you'd probably have to find the data from a different source, uh, if possible, maybe from the university itself or from the prison itself, if that's available. That's right. You you would probably want to take the enrollment numbers and subtract them off the Yolo County numbers. Um, uh, so. This is a good time to, thank you for reminding me. Um, sometimes we talk about population in terms of total population. Sometimes we talk about population in terms of civilian non-institutional population. And that tends to be people that you would think would make up your sales tax base, for example, or the people who would be looking for housing in your area. And so when you are looking at data on the Department of Finance website, uh, it's a good idea to sort of like try and figure out what we're, what kind of population we're measuring, whether we're measuring total population or whether, whether we are measuring civilian non-institutional population. Um, the other big caveat to a lot of these population numbers can be military, because depending mm -hmm. on what source you're using, then people who are not actually at a base have their residence at that base. Um, this tends to be a big uh, issue, for example, for um, San Diego, where they have a lot of people who are officially located there in terms of residency, but they're not actually there because they're posted abroad. Mm. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, here is... Another set of population pyramids that I think are very interesting. These are ones that we put into the governor's budget. Um, so the governor's budget is released every year right around January 10. Uh, it includes a chapter on demographic trends and any sort of demographic analysis that we think are important for informing the policy choices uh, of the governor's budget. Uh, it includes uh, an economic chapter where we talk about what we're seeing in the economy as a whole uh, and risks. So I encourage you to read those. I write those, so clearly they're going to be very interesting. <laughs> and then there's also a chapter on revenues um, that tells us how much money the state is going to get. Um, this is from uh, the beginning of 2018, and we have some population pyramids that look at California in 1950, 1980, and 2016. So, um, you know, clearly you can see by the size of the population pyramids that in 1950, we had a much smaller population. Uh, by 1980, it was larger. Um, and by 2016, it was much larger. 
Um, you can also see the evolution of um, uh, sort of there, there was um, this bulge in 1950 of working age people that sort of intensified in 1980. And then by 2016, you have this much more cylindrical effect. Uh, so these population pyramids are not just broken down by men and women, uh, but it's also broken down by who is in the labor force and what they're doing. So there's some people who are retired or not in the labor force. Clearly, there tend to be more uh, women who are not in the labor force. Uh, women's labor force participation is just lower in general. Uh, women tend to be the default caretakers, um, which is a trade-off. Um, so keep in mind that if you are assuming that your aging population is going to be looked after in home and by the family, oftentimes that means that women's labor force participation is lower and you have lower incomes for the, house, for the household as a whole. So we don't really price that very well. Um, we tend to think of that as an individual choice. But if you are encouraging people to be looked at at home, then you are giving up something in terms of the opportunity cost of those women earning a wage, for example. Or same thing with childcare issues. Okay. So um, you can see who's in labor force, who's not. Uh, you can see who is unemployed and at what age ranges those people tend to be unemployed. Um, and then you can also see when people are in school. Um, and so this is what's most interesting, I think. So you can really see the expansion of women to the labor force, uh, but you can also see people are spending far more time in school. This is, I think, by and large, a good thing because it should make people more productive, but it also means that for people to be self-supporting and what you assume about what they're doing is probably a little bit different than you turn 18, you get a good job, you get married, you start a family, you buy a house. All of that has kind of gotten put off. And so it's much more typical for people to put off getting married, buying a house, um, settling down until they are older, uh, which does, in fact, reduce the birth rate. Because if you start having kids when you're 20, um, you could have three or four kids not a problem, and still space them out quite a lot. Uh, if you are only starting to have kids when you're maybe 30 or 35, you're maybe going to have one or two, probably, un unless you really group them together. Um, so, you know, again, there are trade-offs. Okay. Um, so, one more observation. This is also very tied to housing situation and where, how many people are in your housing stock um, and whether they tend to be older or whether there is still new housing stock uh, that younger families can move into. Um, that's going to determine what your own population pyramid for your own local area looks like. Okay. So here's the question. Um, if you are trying to do the finances for your local area and you are hiring someone now who might have a 30-year career with your city, county, special district, um, and then that person might retire and be retired for 30 years, um, you probably need to think about a 60-year projection. 
So the question is, how many of you do 60-year budget projections? And I will okay, say, take a look at that not very many people do question. That. If you do this, I'm going to be really happy. to do 10 years, but let, let's see how you uh, how this works out in terms of uh, the polling here. I, I think your big point that you that I'm hearing you make on this one, uh, Irena, is that um, uh, hiring uh, and uh, range and commitments to benefits, et cetera, have a long tail to them, and they need exactly. to be thought of in, in a long-term context uh, that may be far beyond what most agencies typically project. And so, um, you know, how how can they grapple with that? We are getting some questions while this is, uh, while we're taking a look at this polling question here about how can people get their the population census graphs for other counties, for example, Los Angeles or others. Uh, and that would be going back to that slide that you showed about your website. Is that right? And they just click on demographics and then they could get a breakout by county or by city whatever level you can provide. Could you just explain a little bit more how they find that and, and what they can do with it? Sure. Um, so we publish our, um, so we ourselves only do 50-year projections. Um, we go out to 2060 because those are based on the 2010 census. After we get the 2020 census data, then we'll go out another 50 years. So we'll go out to 2070. Um, so we publish the state and the county level uh, population projections by age um, all the way out to 2060. So they're not in these nice population pyramid graphs, uh, but you can see the numbers there um, and see what we're assuming in terms of birth rates and migration assumptions uh, to see how your populations are going to evolve at the county level. We don't do sub-county estimates at this point. Uh, sorry, we don't do sub-county population projections at this point. Um, we do estimates at the sub-county level. Uh, so you can look at what your county is doing, at least. And in the estimates that you do at, a, at maybe a city level, that would be, um, that would be just for current, but not for projections. Is that accurate? That's correct. Okay. So people could get a picture of, uh, uh, over time, of what, um, by estimate of, of what their city's demographics have actually been and how they've been changing. Um, and then if they want to take a look at the county projections and think about where do they fit in the county, they could look beyond that, but they at least could get a view of how it's shifted over time. Is that fair? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And that's part of what you're talking about is, is this story that people need to start to develop about what's happening in our community and in our population. So if somebody's thinking about, hey, should we be having more bike paths? Well, do we have more people who are of the age where they are you know, riding bikes and, exactly. and using bikes? Are we having fewer? And therefore, where should we be applying our resources, just as a for example? Exactly. Um, or, for example, if you um, promise some benefits based on the fact that you were going to have three working age people. Um, oh, okay. So clearly no one does 60 year projections. Sorry, that was unfair, but I, but I was hopeful. Maybe someone did it. Um, a bunch of people uh, project five to 10 years. Um, some people do more than 10 years. That's great. Um, and then for those of you who do less than five years, um, you know, demographics don't change that much in less than five years. It's the, slow-moving 
trains that might hit you 20 years down the road that you probably should start thinking about. Um, and again, so if you promised benefits that were based on every single retiree is going to have three to five working age people to support them, and now it's more of a one-to-one -one ratio, that you should probably rethink your assumptions. Okay, um, so this is one of the charts that we have been including in the budget for several years now. Um, this is one of the ones that the governor, when he gives press conferences, tends to hold up over his head and say, see, see, we're really worried about things. Um, so let me re remind you that recessions and expansions are only dated at the U.S. level. They are not dated at the state level. So this is a U.S. recession. Um, so the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at when the current expansion started. So when did we hit bottom and how long have we been improving? Um, so the longest expansion, the longest recovery ever was about 10 years. That one started in the 90s. Um, the current one that we're in started in July of 2009. So by the end of June of 2019, which is very soon now, that, that's in seven months? No, eight months. Um, in eight months, we will have matched the longest expansion in the U.S. history. It's been a very slow expansion in terms of how high unemployment rates stayed for a very long time, in terms of how low inflation has been historically. Uh, wages have not risen very much. There's lots of people who are still not doing great. Uh, we see this much more acutely at the local level, in fact, um, than at the macro U.S. level. Um, so you can sort of see how long typical uh, expansions last, and while we are not predicting a recession, um, we are looking at the historical data and thinking, well, something clearly has to break at some point. We just don't know when. Um, okay. So this is the U.S. and California unemployment rate, and this is one of the charts that I really encourage people to sort of look at um, and to think about how does my own county, how does my own city fit in with this? So the red is California, the blue is U.S., uh, those vertical light blue shading, that, those are recessions. So this goes back to 1990 and then ends, I, I think in the current one, I think we don't quite have the September number because September broke all the records for California. We're now 4.1% unemployment. That is lower than it ever has been by a lot. Um, and we're still trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But a couple of things that you should notice here. Uh, unemployment go rate goes up, it comes down. Once it hits a certain level, it tends to go right up. Um, and the last recession was really, really difficult. Um, and it also didn't, because it, it had farther to fall, it didn't come down for a very long time. Those un that unemployment rate represents real people who are kind of desperate. They've been looking for work. Um, they've been out of work for a long time. Maybe they're running down their 401ks. Maybe they lost their house to foreclosure. Um, maybe the industry that they used to work in, that they had a really good job in, uh, has now disappeared. Maybe their employer has gone bankrupt. Um, you know, this is kind of a bloodless graph, but this is real people that we're talking about. Um, and 
to me, the other worrying thing about this chart is that it looks like I cut it off right before it went back up. Um, and so, yes, all of our forecasts say that it's going to remain just fine for the next 10 years because that's sort of the rules by which we play. Um, we have to forecast that growth is going to continue because we don't know when a recession is going to happen. Um, so we do forecast that things are going to be fine. But because we are so worried about where we are and because it looks like unemployment rate is probably going to start going up again, this is when we pivot to talking much more about here's our baseline forecast, here's what will happen if everything goes right, there are lots of things that could go wrong, let's talk about how things can go wrong and how things might look if they start going wrong. Um, and, you know, clearly your communication with your policymakers is going to be very different when times are good than when we're sort of in the recovery. Sorry, I'm going to go back one. Um, so clearly when, you know, from about 2012 all the way through 2016, things were getting better and there was lots of space for things to improve. So basically you could do a straight line projection and it would have been fine. Um, once you get to this low level where you think that a turning point might happen or that there's a very narrow path to maintain growth, that's when you start pivoting to, okay, we're worried things are fine right now, that means that things could go really wrong. Um, I am, unfortunately, a very depressing person to talk to because I can never stay on the, things are great right now. <laughs> I always have to pivot to, and then they're going to go wrong. Okay. So here's residential construction. Here's something I am sure that a lot of you have been dealing with. So um, clearly there's overbuilding. Uh, in the run-up to the last recession, and clearly there has been underbuilding ever since about 2009, probably since about 2008, in fact. So we've done some calculations, and rough rule of thumb is that you would need to build 180,000 more housing units every single year just to keep up with population growth. So this chart looks at the single family and the multifamily, and the multifamily is measured by units. So this is not a multifamily building with five units. This is a multifamily unit. Um, so we're on a consistent apples to apples sort of comparison. Um, and this looks at residential construction permits. This is permits, this is not how many actually get built. Um, usually anything that is permitted does eventually get built. But more recently, we've had a lot of fires. Uh, we've also had more, uh, sort of demolition of single-family homes for conversion to more multifamily units. So this is not entirely the net increase, um, but we tend to track permits because we think that it's a pretty good indicator of what is going on in building trends. So you can see that we're barely above 100,000. This, in 2018 year to date, we're running at about 120,000 units. That's still 60,000 units below what we would need just for population growth, just for the people who are graduating from college and, you know, maybe want to move out of their parents' basement. Um, so things that we think are happening here, there's a lot more overcrowding. There's a lot of people who would move for job opportunities to places, but are limited because they can't find a job that pays well enough for them to live in that area. 
So either they don't take that job, they take a worse job in their local area, or um, you know they move out of state potentially. Um, and so a lot of productive people could just be squeezed out of this. Um, we also think that some things that might be happening are people are legally living in granny flats or converted garages or you know they have four people to a bedroom in a rental house but they're not really admitting that. Um, the other thing that I like to talk about is that out of all California households, um, about 20% of them, so 20% of California households, one in five households, not people, but households, um, pay 50% or more of their household income in rent or housing costs. Some of those are homeowners. Um, to me, that is shocking. When, when my staff told me that, how, how can you possibly have that many people who pay 50% of their household income in housing costs? You would have almost nothing left for anything else. Um, a lot of those households as well probably are dual income households. And so, and some of those people are probably working more than one job. And so you have people who really, really are squeezed out of a lot of opportunity because you don't have enough housing. Um, Economists like to talk about trade-offs, and in this situation, this is a good idea. In that situation, that's a good idea. Um, in California, it is almost always a good idea to build more housing. We are so constrained on this that it is one of the risks that we warn about um, in terms of keeping future growth going. So, if I were talking to any of you individually, I'd say build more housing. Encourage your local policymakers to build more housing, which I know is difficult. Um, I know that locals don't like building more housing because they like keeping the character of their neighborhoods, but there's a huge need. Okay, here is the other trend that I do want to talk about a little bit. So this goes back to 1970, and this looks at California jobs by sort of major sector. Are they goods producing, are they service providing, or are they government? Um, and the first time my staff put together this chart for me, I was a little bit surprised because the share of government has actually fallen by quite a lot. So, so government includes federal, state, and local. Um, so part of this is the federal government uh, now has far less defense in, in California. So it's a smaller proportion of our jobs. Uh, but part of this is also the state and locals, their um, employment has not kept up with sort of what overall jobs there are. Um, you can also see there's far fewer goods producing jobs. So that's manufacturing, that's construction, uh, that's mining and logging, uh, and there's far more private services. Uh, that's retail, that's professional development service, professional and business services, that's um, all of your Silicon Valley stuff, that's financial services, um, that's yoga teachers. Um, our sales tax base so, so is only, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, so digi digital services, those uh, produced by Silicon Valley are not considered goods, I guess, in this classification. So they would no. be, a, okay. Those are considered to be services, yes. Mm -hmm. So if you are working on um, a production that is uh, All those apps doing, and um, things. Well, so um, entertainment services, that, that was always in the services sector. Um, mm -hmm. So if you were working in the film industry, producing a film that was still considered to be a service. 
Um, it was only if you were actually, I don't know, printing the book, for example, or printing the DVD. That would count as a goods producing, but otherwise it, it would count as a service production. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so the other interesting thing is that, you know, it's now easier and cheaper to produce goods, uh, which is why we have fewer people in that sector. We need fewer people just producing an ever-increasing amount of stuff. Uh, and so far more people work and far more people spend money on services because goods relatively are, are cheaper now as well. Um, that means that our sales tax base is now very skewed. Um, we only tax goods um, in our sales tax base, tangible goods, which is why, for example, auto malls can be a great money um, source for, for locals. Um, but we don't tax any of these services. Uh, so if we were going to do that, if we were going to expand the sales tax base, that would be a huge change. Uh, you could probably have a much lower sales tax rate, um, but then you would also have to figure out how to tax all of these yoga instructors or, you know, lawyers or healthcare providers, for example. And then, of course, there would be the inevitable fight about, yeah, should we be taxing healthcare or should we not? What kinds of healthcare should we be taxing? Mm -hmm. um, right now, we tax things like um, over-the-counter. So if I go and buy aspirin, then I'm going to pay sales tax on that. If my doctor prescribes something, then that's prescription and that's exempt. Um, also, there's things like the tampon tax, which has been very controversial. Um, that should be a necessity. Groceries, um, necessities are, are supposed to be exempt. Um, and so tampon taxes, uh, people claim, are, are unfair for that reason. Do you see the growth in the services sector enhancing taxes and other types of tax uh, revenues, uh, you know, other than sales taxes, they're an offset someplace else? Um, at the state level, yes. Um, state level. At the, um, Certainly not at the local, local level, level, no. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of these services are in sectors where there are some people who've made quite a lot of money. And so in terms of capital gains, you know, for example, all of the people who work for Google who make really great um, salaries or who had stock options or who get bonuses, they have, you know, very high incomes. And so the state benefits from that. But I don't think locals benefit from that. Um, I mean, we do have they, some equivalent of the state income tax in sense, or corporate tax in the sense that we have local business uh, license or business operations taxes. And uh, sort of an interesting note, of course, some of, I think some people have heard of the, uh, uh, you know, the Seattle type uh, head tax. There, there is a measure uh, in Mountain View uh, coming up next month that uh, imposes a schedule uh, if the voters approve it, a general tax. It's based on a type of a business tax, and it's a per-employee tax on um, the, the, the local. The intention is to get the large Silicon Valley companies there and, and to make up for the fact that there's not the impact on the sales tax revenues that there are with other kinds of businesses. So there, there are moves to do that. The trade-off there is that um, if you impose a per-employee tax, and I think yeah. San Francisco had a payroll tax until recently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They decided that that was discouraging people from locating employees in their area 
-hmm. And so, you know, all of the expansion was going to go to somewhere like Texas where it's really cheap. Right. So then you wouldn't benefit from that in any case. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can benefit a little bit from people being in your area and during working hours, um, but again, or, you know, may, maybe they want to buy a house in your local area, and so then that drives up property prices, and so you might benefit a little bit from that. Um, or a new corporation might buy a business park, and then you might trigger a Prop 13 reassessment. Um, but unless you have things like that, then you don't have the, the natural tendency to raise revenues to the same extent that you are sort of like having people in your area. Yeah. So let's do a poll because I am a little curious about how, how this happens. How do you account for recessions in your forecast? So the state actually does assume that growth continues forever. We know that this is wrong, but that is sort of the rules of the game. Um, so we do assume that growth continues forever. Um, another option is to reduce growth rates so that they're right on average. So that over the next 10 years, they're going to average to be about what they would if, um, uh, you know, a, a recession happened in the middle. So you kind of like split the, the difference. Um, the other way to handle this is to do a separate recession scenario. And this is what the state does. Uh, we sort of say, here's what would happen if growth did continue, um, but we're a little bit worried about it, so we do a separate recession scenario. So we're going to take a look at what uh, people are doing out there in your own practices uh, to deal with recession. I think uh, you've made a strong case, uh, Irena, that uh, people need to be thinking about a recession. It's it's inevitable. It's not an if. It's a when uh, question. Mm -hmm. And you've highlighted all the indicators that show that we're we're close to the conditions that would trigger a situation like that. So it's important to be taking a look at how do you think about this and how do you approach it. So while, while that question is up there, a uh, question came in uh, just wanting to confirm with you what the figure was you stated about the number of housing units that need to be constructed on an annual basis to keep up with the California population growth. Someone would like you to just repeat what that number was. Um, so as kind of a rule of thumb, there there's a number of different ways in which you could look at this, um, but under our current population projections, um, we're thinking that you need probably about 180,000 every single year. Okay. And um, um, just to highlight to, for to people. The housing shortage, by the way, you, sorry, you, you would need more than that just because there, there was that low um, area where we didn't build that many for so long. So to get back to sort of like what would not be a really tight housing situation, you need more than 180 to ease that. Okay, so we're going to take a look at the polling results here, and um, so you can see what, what people are doing. Uh, I'm also seeing a response coming in to the question function. Somebody added uh, specifics of what they're doing. They're doing a trifecta. They're assuming full employment to inflate the costs. They're okay. assuming that they're, uh, that they're going to continue to uh, have all their employees. They reduce growth rates to average and they add a recession okay. scenario. So there's a sort of a mix and match that some are using out there to try to try to address this. And again, uh, looking at your website and the resources that you have available on employment, how far does that break down and how can people, again, they would go to the Department of Finance website that we've got 
in the in the deck here so you can see what the URL is. But uh, how far would that break down? Would it go to cities? Would it enable people to uh, get specific information about employment in their their area, or where could they get that? So um, that's a great question. Uh, for the employment data, you would have to go to the Employment Development Department, um, and the thing that you should Google is the Labor Market Information Division of the Employment Development. If you just do California Labor Market Information Division, uh, LMID, they are the ones who do all of the employment numbers uh, by county. They don't do underneath the county, um, but you can get a sense of the county. Uh, the thing to keep in mind for county level data at the monthly level is that they're not seasonally adjusted. So all of the California numbers are seasonally adjusted, but the county level data are not adjusted. And the reason that's important is because, for example, if you live in a rural county where you have a lot of agriculture, then you're going to get a ton of workers, you're going to get a ton of employment um, during harvest season or during planting season. Or, you know, if you're in a very urban area, then a lot of people do a lot of hiring during, um, during the holiday season. So there, there are strong seasonal components. Um, you also see strong seasonal components, for example, when all the teachers go back to work. Um, and it's been a little bit difficult to do that seasonal adjustment recently because a lot of different districts are shifting around when their school year starts. So for example, like, you know, you, you get these big bumps in August when before we thought that it should happen in September. Uh, so you do have to be aware of that at the county level data. Um, but the Labor Market Information Division, they do have a ton of data. Um, they have some very nice graphing functions on their website as well. Uh, so I encourage you to go and look and play at that, uh, play with that. Um, they also have very nice people working there um, who are happy to answer questions. So. Okay, so it's the California Department of Labor, Labor Market Information Division. Google that, find the information that's there, but uh, take note of the caveats and probably, if you're going to get serious about it, talk with somebody on the staff to help you understand uh, some of the nuances that might apply to your particular city. But there is a way to drill down and find out some uh, employment figures that should be informing your um, uh, decision-making about what your economic base is in, in your community and uh, where it's been trending. Is that That's fair? Right. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Let's jump into revenues. Um, so this is the state budget. This is not state and local budgets. Um, so this is general fund revenue by source. Um, and it shows you how the base has evolved over time. So it goes all the way back to 1950 and then sort of looks at five-year chunks. Um, and so you can really see that in 1950, a huge portion of the state's um, revenue base was retail sales and use, user tax. Not very much of it was personal income tax. Some of it was corporation tax. We had an estate tax at that point. There is a long and complicated story to deal with estate tax and whether or not we could have an estate tax in California. Um, I can answer that question individually if you're really curious, but the short answer is we don't get one. Um, and then the other. So those are sort of a mishmash of, of user fees and things. Um, so, it used to be that sales tax was 60% of the state's budget, uh, and now it turns, you know, now it's less than 20%. Um, corporation taxes, even though corporations tend to be much more wealthy, 
uh, they've also figured out how to manage their taxes and do tax planning so that uh, they make up a much smaller proportion of, of our tax base for the general fund. Um, you can also see that a far larger proportion, two-thirds or more, um, of the general fund revenues comes from the personal income tax. Um, that has been a huge evolution. And part of this, um, someone recently asked me, well, why can't, you know, if, if the state balanced its budget on the back of sales taxes, why can't we cut personal income taxes and why can't we go back to that situation in the 1950s? And I had to remind them that at the end of the 1970s, we got Prop 13 and then that really cut property taxes for locals. Um, and so then the state had to step in with Prop 98 money. Um, Prop 98 was after Prop 13, well after, um, to make sure that the local schools had enough money because they weren't raising it locally in property taxes. Um, and so as a source of revenue, you have to look where the money is and the rich people have the money. Um, so that's the evolution of our revenues. Um, you can also see, this is one of the tables from our, uh, from the budget. Uh, you can sort of see how much money there is. So for example, in about 2020, according to the last budget, we thought that we were going to hit about $100 billion in personal income taxes, which is a lot. Um, but in terms of a $2.7 trillion economy, it's still not a lot. Um, the California state budget makes up maybe 6% of um, the total GDP of the state. Um, we can't fix everything. Um, a lot of people think, oh, well, we have all this money. We can do all this great stuff. We can affect things. We are still very constrained. Um, I put these charts in the wrong order. Hold on one second. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I left out one of the charts that I often put in. Let me go back one second. Um, to general fund revenue by source. So the other thing to keep in mind for personal income taxes is that these are very, very dependent on the top earners. California, by choice, has a very progressive tax system. Um, and one of the reasons why we did that is because a lot of the gains in terms of, you know, the economy has been growing, um, wages have been rising, personal income has been rising. A lot of that has gone to the top earners. And that's one of the reasons why we have a very progressive tax system, because you don't want to be taxing someone who makes $30,000 a year and has three kids. Um, they probably need every single penny of, of their income. Whereas um, someone who is making a million dollars or more, if for them to pay an additional $1,000 in taxes is not a big deal. Um, they are not going to be as harmed by someone who is much more constrained. Um, and so the state really has chosen to have a much more progressive income tax. Um, so a couple of numbers for you. Um, in 2016, which is the last year that we have um, in terms of the data, the top 1% of taxpayers paid around Sorry, the top 1% of taxpayers got about 25% of all taxable income. 
So like one out of every hundred got, you know, a quarter of the money that was available, which is a lot. They also paid about 45% of all personal income taxes. So you can sort of see how dependent we are on that top 1%. If that top 1%, for example, if the stock market goes down, um, a lot of their taxes come from capital gains um, or from bonuses, which are also very tied to the stock market. Um, and so if their income goes down, we might not get as much in terms of revenue. And so that's part of what makes our revenues so very volatile. Um, and it's a big vulnerability. The way this comes down to the local level is that if the state is in cutting mode, then one of the things that they can do is not pay locals promptly, or they might cut programs that benefit people in the local areas. So for example, one of the things that they had to do when they had to cut, I think it was 20 to $25 billion in, in one of the really bad budgets, um, they had to uh, sort of cut a whole bunch of Medi-Cal benefits. So dental benefits, vision benefits, I think, um, were some of those. Um, they had to worry about who was on Medi-Cal. So they had to tighten some eligibility. Um, they also um, had to, you know, make some hard choices for uh, the local schools. And so if local schools have to pull back, those teachers also are not spending money in your local areas. Um, so recessions are tough for everyone. Um, this is our revenue forecast. Um, one other point that I'm going to make here is that out of, so the state now has a rainy day fund, um, which is fully funded, uh, but it's capped at 10% of general fund revenues. So if we had to cut 25% of our budget during the last recession, and we only have a, and that spread out, um, and that scale of cuts had to be maintained for a couple of years at a time. We only have 10%. There is no way to smooth out entirely all of the cuts that we're going to have to make. So some cuts are going to be inevitable. It's not going to be as bad because we do have that rainy day fund, but you are going to have to make some hard choices. Okay. Uh, Don, I can't figure out how to go to the next one. Thank you. Um, here is the other chart along with the unemployment rate chart that um, I call my freak out charts. So this goes all the way back to 1950. Again, the vertical light blue areas, those are recessions. Um, so you can see that the S&P 500, it goes up, it comes down. It goes up, it comes down. It goes way up. And it really looks as though we're about to come back down and I've just cut off the chart before it goes back down. Um, so more recently, I've, I think I sent this to Dawn maybe last week. Um, more recently, it's gone down into correction territory. So it went back to sort of um, where it was at the end of 2017. Um, and then it's been up again. And then I think it went back down again. Um, the point is, it's very volatile. It is a, a historically high level. We are getting a lot of cash at the state level because of this, um, and I don't know how long it's going to last. So this is the other chart that I look at and I show to people whenever someone says, oh, well, times are really good, and of course we're going to keep getting this much money in the future. Well, probably not.
Um, can we go to the next one, please? Um, so this is the other one. This is probably uh, the closest correlate to the scale of cuts that might have to happen at your local level. I know that we don't have school districts here, um, but this is what your school districts were dealing with uh, during the recession. So uh, they were getting about $56, $57 billion in 2007 um, That shrank to about $47 billion in, a couple years later. Um, and then it's really been increasing a lot so far. Part of that is Prop 98, which ties uh, how much money schools get to how well the general fund has been doing. The general fund has been doing great, and so they've been getting a lot more money. But are they going to continue getting that much money? Um, and are they spending it on things that they're going to have, that are going to be easy to cut? Um, that's the big issue. Um, and so every, every place is different. Every place has different vulnerabilities, but I really encourage you to look at what happened during the last recession to try and figure out where your vulnerabilities are, um, what was driving those, and what might be different this time. Okay, so here's the question that I have for you guys. How much did did your revenues drop in the last recession? So some people said, well, they actually increased. Um, uh, no noticeable difference. Uh, they could fall by maybe 10%, um, sell by 25%, sell by more than 25%. Um, I, I think that probably at the local level, if there were a number of places that were really dependent on the housing boom, they probably were very hard hit. Um, other places where they hadn't had that happen to them, maybe they didn't really notice. Um, keep in mind that sometimes um, your cycle is also going to be offset from the U.S. cycle as a whole or the California cycle as a whole. So it could have been that, yeah, the couple of, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009 were just fine for you guys, but it was in 2010 and 2011 that really the chickens came home to roost. So I, I, I would go from... Uh, like what was your worst year? Like what, what was your biggest drop? And it could have been also over several years. Okay, good. So again, uh, looking at the issue of, okay, how do you uh, deal with uh, recessions? How do you deal with uh, managing that? How do you communicate what that has been historically for your agency as, as, a, as a signal to what might be ahead? Um, and we do have a school district or, or more uh, here on this particular webinar, so they are attentive to those uh, Prop 98 numbers that you were showing uh, okay. as really being a, a key part of what, what's going about for them. So, so again, the whole issue here is uh, how to look at, uh, I think I'm hearing two elements from you on this, uh, Irena. One is, um, it is important to be looking at what's happening at the state level because the state could have ripple effects down to the local. There is some buffer for that, but it's not nearly the size of buffer that would be needed to um, fully accommodate what a typical recession would mean uh, for the state as a whole. Is that is that a fair summary of what I'm hearing from you? That's right. Yes. Uh, particularly given how much of it is dependent upon uh, you know stock market returns and and high earners and other things that are highly fluctuating compared to you know other things that would be more stable. So uh, caution right. ahead, I guess, is the 
is the message that's coming through. Um, okay, let's take a look at uh, what people uh, saw. And again, part of this uh, asking you this question is so that you're thinking about how are you communicating this uh, in your budgets coming up about what the history has been and what's uh, what could be around the corner if the past is a guide. Now, of course, you'd update that past by the kind of demographic shifts and economic shifts that you've been seeing in your communities, you know, since the last recession. Those might either make these a future recession a bigger impact or a smaller impact. There's variety of things that uh, Irene is highlighting to you that could go one way or another. What, what are you seeing in this that you'd like to highlight um, for our audience, Michael? Well, a couple things. One, uh, as we think about what's going on with the effects of the next recession on the state's budget, it's very important to pay attention to that, as, as we said. But it's a bit of a different scenario today than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. And I emphasize this a lot when I'm, I'm talking to you all at various functions uh, in a couple of aspects. One is that the the state's uh, the legislature's ability to to defer local revenues is much more constrained now because of constitutional changes. Uh, for example, in the area of transportation revenues, of course, this is a very hot topic because of one of the there's a certain proposition you may be aware of on the ballot coming up um, that has to do with transportation measures, and you've probably heard a lot of things about. Uh, what the state is doing with transportation revenues. In fact, uh, the state constitutionally can no longer take nor borrow any of the gas tax revenues or vehicle uh, license fee revenues. All of that stuff is constitutionally protected. Your sales tax is constitutionally protected. They can't do any more ERAF shifts. So you're, uh, in terms of exposure and risk to a revenue downturn at the state, it's much changed. That's not to say it's eliminated, but it's much different. The second area is that, you know, I have to compliment, you know, the, the current administration. You can't, you know, not do so. And, and, and the voters of California, uh, and there's an article coming out in CSMFO that's going to address this uh, in the magazine coming up soon that you can look at. In several areas, they've been able to, to restore a lot more fiscal integrity to the, to the state's finances, uh, much because of Prop 2 largely and because of a lot of fiscal discipline imposed by the governor. Um, uh, a lot stronger reserve that's going to help quite a bit. Um, as as Irene is pointing out, a downturn can go well beyond the, the 16 million we now have in reserves. But uh, but the the exposure is much more uh, the risk is much more reduced because of better financial planning. Uh, so we need to be careful. Uh, it's the second aspect, of course, is that uh, the state's impacts are going to be felt first and foremost before they're hit locally. Uh, I mean, we, we're going to experience those in, in the area of sales tax more immediately, but the property tax impacts are going to, there's a delay in terms of how those show up. You're going to start to see that in market valuations, and you should be in close communication with with, with your assessors and what they're talking about and, 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 and seeing in the market. If they'll um, talk with you about that, that's very helpful. And then you'll see a, de a delay in terms of that showing up in your revenues, and it's very important to pay attention to that. But we have the advantage, at least with the property tax and, and our relationship to that, that there's a little bit more ability to see that coming, at least within a year or two coming down the line. Okay. Yeah. So this all Thank leads you. to the important topic of uh, contingency planning. So what's your guidance on, on that topic? And, and we've got a couple more uh, key uh, sources of information and other topics and polling questions to ask here. So we want to be sure to have time for that as well. But what's your contingency planning suggestions and how do we, how might people weave together the resources that you've identified today, Arena? 
So, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of this. Um, it's sort of know your circumstances. Uh, and in the circumstances, you're looking both at data and you're looking at a story. Um, you're looking at sort of this narrative about what's going on in your community um, and what kinds of pressure points there are. Uh, you have to know your history. Uh, history is not always the perfect guide for the future because, for example, if you, during the last recession, there were far fewer retirees than there are now. And so it's very difficult to sort of say, yes, we're going to tax retirees um, or we're going to cut retirement benefits for people who have already been retired. Uh, that, that almost never happens. It, it does happen, but it, it's very rare. Um, and then you should also, as part of that narrative and as part of marrying the data to the story, you have to know what your assumptions are. Um, and if your assumptions end up being wrong, well then you should probably adjust the story. Um, and here, again, in that narrative, in that marrying the data with the narrative, uh, like more people having eyes on it, more people talking about this sort of thing, it really, really helps. Um, and so don't be shy about sort of involving members of the community. Don't be shy about involving your policymakers. Don't be shy about involving the rest of your staff, you know, for example, who might just be doing planning permits. Um, they, they probably have an, eyes and ears on the ground. Um, and might be able to uh, contribute crucial details to you um, that help you refine your story. Okay, so we're gonna take a look next at a polling question to see uh, which of these suggestions you'd like to be incorporating in your uh, particular planning efforts and budgeting. Uh, so tick off as many of those as apply. And meanwhile, we have a couple of questions that came in. Um, uh, and, and here, this is a chance to look in your crystal ball. Um, so, uh, an agency is preparing a 10-year forecast. Which year should we plan for a recession, and how long do you think it will last? Any guesses? <laughs> uh, so, like I said, we don't forecast recessions. Um, our current recession scenario usually assumes that it lasts one year. Um, uh, so the tax recession only lasted a couple of months, lasted less than a year. Uh, the last recession lasted a year and a half. Um, so we think that a year is probably maybe between the two. Um, that's what our recession scenario does. And we do a recession scenario. I think our last published one had it in the 2019-20 fiscal year. So it started in the middle of 2019 and it lasted for a year. Um, and then there were a couple of years of recovery. Uh, and then we sort of got back to the previous growth path. So your mileage may vary. Um, that might be a good indication of what a normal-sized recession would look like for you. Um, you might want to have a different kind of scenario that's worse or less less bad, for example. Okay. And another uh, question here, just very briefly in response, uh, working with a small agency, how do we find consultants to help with long-term fiscal models for the 10 plus years? On that one, I would just simply step in and say, hey, a good source for that is to go to the uh, CSMFO email listserv um, and uh, ask them um, uh, you know, what people's experience has been. It's a very good resource and you could likely get a lot of responses. You might also see that those responses, there's already response on that in the resource uh, center for CSMFO, so you don't have to ask the question again. Um, so so let's, let, me, let's, let me jump in, Don, let, yeah. let me just say one thing. If, if you end up hiring a consultant, there is no substitute for sort of knowing um, what that consultant is doing and being involved in that process because your consultant is not going to have the same level of local knowledge that you do. So you have to ask the questions. Like, don't let it be a black box. 
don't let it be like, well, someone who is expert told us this. The expert might not know crucial details that you might. So just, you know, be, use it skeptically, be involved, um, don't just sort of offload your responsibilities to someone else. Well, I just emphasize uh, that's absolutely so important because uh, th this is why, uh, in terms of revenue estimating, for example, uh, an economist who's coming in and simply doing, uh, you know, trend analysis, whatever sophisticated modeling they might do, is not going to give you uh, the kind of granularity and precision that you need in a good sales tax or property tax forecasting. You need somebody who's on the ground and understands the specifics of what's going on in your community. And you may not know that unless you talk to the people who are in your community. It's not something that you can tell from past results, but it's from, particularly if you're a small community and you're talking about, uh, you know, a few major taxpayers, it's oh, even more crucial to know what, what, oh, I'm sorry. It's even more crucial to know um, the specifics of what's going on uh, in the particular major businesses in your community or contributors to the tax base, um, when that family might be selling the business and what's going to happen to it in the future, um, it, that poses things that you're not going to be able to see in the statistics. Okay. So you've identified okay, some I'm, additional... I'm sorry. Um, Michael, um, you got cut off, and now I saw that Don was trying to say something, and I couldn't hear anything. Um, okay. I I think it may be oh, your connection. I'm hearing uh I'm hearing Michael. Are you hearing me now, uh oh, Irena? I'm I'm hearing you now. Okay. Sorry about okay. that. So you have some additional uh you have some resources identified here. So a big one of course is, is to look in the in the PDF and find um the Department of Finance uh, statistics that are available that uh, Irena gave you a screenshot of, of what those are on the demographics and the uh, economic forecast elements, et cetera. Uh, but here are some additional ones. Do you want to highlight what a few of those are? I know you talked about the first one. We, we talked about um, LMID. Um, they, they have some great resources there. Um, we didn't mention the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Um, there's also the Bureau of Labor Statistics at the federal level, uh, but really all of the state stuff is, it, it's just going to be much easier to use from uh, the California Labor Market Information Division. Um, so the Bureau of Economic Analysis has some information about locals. Um, it comes with a big lag. So that gives you GDP by your local area and also some personal income by your local area. But again, it, it comes with a huge lag. Um, and then the final one that we didn't talk about is that um, the state both publishes the demographic and economic and revenue chapters in the budgets, but we also, whenever... Whoops, we're losing a sound connection with, with you on your end. I'm wondering, do you have a... Um, Irena, I'm losing your sound connection. Could you, uh, could you speak again? I'm wondering if you have a... Is any issue with your telephone, Michael? Can we hear you speak? I can. Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm still on there. So. Okay. Yeah, uh, Irena. For some reason, we're not hearing you on your end. Um, so you're speaking, but it's not coming through. So, so these are some important resources. So let's take a look at um, uh, some important post-webinar discussion questions. So the big issue here for you is, you know, what are you going to do with all this great information that's been shared with you? Um, what do the forecasts mean for your agency? Uh, what resources do you want to tap? How are you going to communicate this information and engage people and what the story is about your community and what's looking like uh, for the future? Um, 
You know, one of the things that I was he uh, hearing from you, Michael, uh, and here are the contacts, of course, for today's session. That'll be in the PDF as well as posted. Uh, but I want to go to a, a polling question here on uh, what value people got out of today's session uh, and how to apply it for their agency. And Irena, if if um, we can't hear you, you might uh, try reconnecting by phone uh, if you can hear us um, so that we can close with your final advice here. But meanwhile, we're going to get a polling question up and, and have people uh, indicate what value they got from today's session, tick off as many of the items that we sought to deliver in today's uh, webinar that you've gained value from uh, so that we can get some feedback on how this uh, delivered on what you were hoping to get and we were hoping to provide. Uh, but while it's going, Michael, uh, I want to go back to your comment about what's shifted and the changes that have happened to help buffer local uh, government agencies. Uh, so what I'm hearing is, you know, it might be a buffer time before some of these state issues would hit and before, you know, broader economic um, shifts might hit, but th they could come with um, with a lag so that as local agencies are uh, figuring out their budgets for the next two years, it might not be things that would hit their budget in the next year or even the next two years, uh, but they should be, uh, what would you advise them about the caution they should have about making big commitments because things that are likely to hit would be coming thereafter and if they made ongoing commitments, there might not be the resources to support it. What would you advise about that? How would you see helping people navigate um, well, I'd be very leery about, yeah, I, I, I think you have to, of course, be very careful about these on, uh, ongoing commitments, labor agreements, and these kinds of things and what you're entered into and, and, uh, and have a, a plan for how you're going to deal with the downturn. There, we can't tell you when, but uh, we, we can tell you there will come a downturn. You should think about what that means for you. And if that comes and when that comes, when it does, when it does come, uh, what, what your plan is for responding to it. Um, my my uh, sort of uh, analysis of the risk exposure from the state only goes so far. Um, we have to stay very vigilant uh, during budgeting time uh, and watch what the, what, what's happening with the legislature because when they catch a cold, we tend to sneeze uh, or whatever it is when they sneeze, we catch a cold. Either way, um, it, we're very much affected by that. And if it doesn't come directly in terms of, of, of uh, delays in payments and those kinds of things because the rules have maybe changed somewhat, it still can come in, down, in, in, in actions by uh, to contract and for the, the legislature to manage its financial problems that have uh, spillover effects into our, uh, our economic uh, impacts, into uh, uh, service demands, and, and uh, particularly with regard to counties. They're affected even more in terms of the kinds of service uh, services that they need to provide. Very much more dependent upon the state. Those have ripple effects. So uh, you have we always have to stay vigilant and have a plan for dealing with this as best we can. Okay, thanks, Michael. So we're seeing that our audience got lots of value in many dimensions from today's session. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Irena Osmondson and Michael Coleman, for your great work on this. And really appreciate thank all you. that you did in help working with me to develop this. And Irena, are you back on with your audio? Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, wonderful. Good. Uh, so let's just uh, cover a, a couple final items here that. Um, we want to highlight one is these materials are available at the website. You'll get 
uh, a link to this in the follow-up to today's uh, webinar. Um, and there are lots of other resources. We also are encouraging everybody to provide their input about uh, future webinars and topics that are of interest to you. Uh, that really makes a difference in our planning, and we welcome that. Uh, and we're going to take a look at our upcoming webinar on uh, November 15th with the topic of qualifying and, and paying independent contractors and temporary employees. It's a nettlesome area uh, with some recent court cases that have important implications for agency exposure uh, that finance professionals need to deal with as this often ends up in your lap. So be sure to register for that. Notices have gone out. We encourage you to take a look at that. So uh, we have uh, just a moment left here and uh, maybe a, a, a closing comment from you, Irena. Really appreciate your service at the state level and to our agency. Uh, through the organization of CSMFO for doing uh, this session. Uh, so we'll go to you. And then, Michael, there's a closing question. What significant revenue opportunities do you see in the future? So can you pull anything out of, out of the hat here to close the session? But we'll go to you on that in just a moment. But a, a very short word of phrase from you, Irena, about uh, you know what you'd advise our audience as they think about this and move forward. You know, so a lot of us deal with data and hard numbers, um, but a lot of this really has to do with telling a story and putting together the pieces and making sure that sort of what we think is going to happen is actually going to happen um, and translating that to real actionable questions for your policymakers. Um, so I encourage you to keep asking questions, to keep sort of taking that skeptical eye towards your forecasts um, and, and to, you know, involve more people. And do you ever do like recommend scenario planning where you have scenario A, B, or C? Yeah, uh, if you have the capacity to do that, that's always great. Okay, great. And so, uh, Michael, any suggestions for rabbits out of the hat for future revenues in local government? No, the, the bad news is, that, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're going to have a, there, there's a, a measure coming up in a couple of years that'll be very interesting and very controversial if it actually makes it to the ballot, but in 2020, we may be looking at a split role initiative, and that'll be an interesting one to consider. But I would not depend upon that or put any uh, eggs in that basket if we're continuing the rabbit theme. Isn't Halloween not Easter? But anyway, uh, I, I don't think that uh, we can really be looking at any significant rabbits out of the hat. So my best advice is to fine tune what you already have. And there are a lot of opportunities, I think, among and, and a lot of agencies that are you're really not fully taking advantage of in terms of making sure that you have an effective and thoroughly uh, well done cost allocation plan, that you're really taking a look at your fees and making sure that they're they're adequately set, uh, that, that you're uh, looking at uh, good quality revenue collection and strengthening uh, the, the functionality of what you already have in place and just making the most of that. Great. Well, great advice. So I want to thank Irena Osmondson, uh, the Chief Economist for the Director uh, for the Division Department of Finance for the State of California, and Michael Coleman, a trusted advisor to the League and to uh, CSMFO, and to all of our audience for your attention to the important issues of having effective uh, forecasts in your budgets, so that you're guiding your public officials in helping them to understand what the real parameters are uh, for them in decision making for the future. And on behalf of CSMFO, it's my pleasure to thank you for being here today and for all you do in making uh, local government finance a, a success. Take good care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy